Okay. So are you guys ready to listen to Eric? Some good revelation. Let's pray over him. I just encourage you tonight. Um, I felt that I wanted to pray a, a blessing over you before we start. Um, I break off every word curse. I break off every lie. I break off every accusation that's been spoken over your life. I break the power of every verse that's been used to manipulate or control you. That's witchcraft. And I speak the revelation to you that you're a son and a daughter. Tonight when you were worshiping, you need to be free because you're not worshiping your performance. You're worshiping the one who's transforming you on the inside. And so as Eric comes to speak tonight, listen as a son. Listen as a daughter. Don't be distracted by all the things that you may consider to be your failures or your shortcomings or anything like that. God loves you. He designed you. He created you. And this place is a place to be transformed more fully, more powerfully into what he actually created you to be. So tonight when I pray, we're going to pray that God will speak revelation to you. Every son, every daughter, there's no greater dream than for a father, than for a son and a daughter to hear that revelation and just to go with it. So that's what we're going to pray, okay? So, Father, we just thank you for Eric. We thank you, Lord, for this powerful man. So, For all that you've done in him and for all that you've done through him. Lord, we rejoice and celebrate in what you're doing in this place. We thank you for transformation in capital letters. God, you're changing us and we love you. You're such a great daddy. So tonight, Lord, we just open our hearts to you. We choose to take down all of our walls. And we ask you, speak to our hearts. And we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Eric was uh, saying that how many of you know that when Jesus was being tempted, that Satan used Scripture against Jesus? He actually used Scripture against Jesus to try and convince him to jump off the cliff to commit suicide. It says that the angels will not allow you to strike your foot, so throw yourself off. How do you know that a verse can be used against you in ways that weren't intended to? We need to be able to trust God and to believe Him that His Word is good. If you recognize in the Garden of Eden, the very first sin, it wasn't, oh, check out this tasty apple. It was, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Did He say that you wouldn't you know, be able to see like him. And so that was the original sin is not that there's this great lure, just that God might not be able to be trusted. And so tonight, as we're going to be looking at the word, I want to redeem some of the scriptures that may have been used against us. And there's a whatever desire for people to talk bad about themselves. They want to like push themselves down and, and our identity in Christ just is this big, big doormat. And uh, so that is our goal for tonight. So that one's free. That wasn't part of the message, but... Here we go. If you guys have been around for the past a couple of times I've talked, um, we've been going through identity. And uh, the first week we talked about our holy identity. And, uh, and just back up at one moment. What's been on my mind recently is that the response to the gospel back in the times of the uh, apostles and disciples, the response to the gospel then was so radical. 
the response to what was being told had people flipping out, going crazy. And then in today's life, when people hear about Jesus, they read the word, they're like, meh, you know, it's kind of cool, I guess, you know. And, and so there's this disconnect. And so that's what I've been studying and wanted to pursue. And, and I've identified a few different things. But one of them was that thing is where, where the word holy was only ever reserved for God. That was it. And so the scriptures and the letters that were written to the New Testament churches, such as Hebrews 10.10, 10, that we have all been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all was so outrageous that we would even begin to link ourselves with the word holy. And then I talked about righteousness, and these are all in our podcast, that our righteousness no longer is about what we do, but who we are. Righteousness in the Old Testament was purely about how your flesh performed. And so when the New Testament came and Jesus says you are made righteous, not by what you do, but who you are, it was a radical response. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says you were declared righteous in the name of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The fact that you are the righteousness of God is such an outrageous statement. And how about that our old self was crucified with Jesus, that we have a new self that is in the likeness of God. Heresy, people would say in the, in the times. Ephesians 4 says, And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And so in the past messages, we've talked about righteous identity and holy identity. And the lingering question probably behind all of our minds is that, okay, if I'm holy, if I'm righteous, if I'm all those things, now what about sin? Surely I'm not perfect. Maybe like I, I sinned yesterday. Maybe I sinned in the car on the way here. Like what happens then, you know? And so we have to think about how do we balance that truth of our righteous and holy identity with a world that we are still living in that has consequences, that still has mess-ups. And one of the statements that I made before is that nothing that you ever did made you righteous. And nothing you could ever do could make you unrighteous. Thing with, same with being holy. Nothing you've ever done could make you holy. And nothing you could ever do could make you unholy. Because we died with Christ and inherited his righteousness and his holiness and his holy identity. So how should we understand and approach the topic of sin and understand all this? So I have a few things for you. The first one tonight is that while we died, sin didn't die. Can I get an Amen. Well, we died. Sin didn't die. Just because you die doesn't mean that sin just poofed and went away. It's still here. That old tyrant is still around here, kicking us around, trying to beat us up. But what did die with us was one particular thing. It was the bondage that we have that ties us to sin. Sin didn't die, but that link that is previously inseparable with us died with us. Romans 6.10 says the death he, that's Christ, died. He died sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The old nature, our old selves were unusable. They were useless for anything that we were about to receive in this new age. Our old self, our old identity was not something that was eligible to be remodeled. There wasn't anything good left in it. There was not a shred. And that's why it's so critical that we know in our new identity that we died. There wasn't anything worth saving. It was completely gone. Um, when I was in college, we, uh, we, well, who does laundry when you're in college, right? I mean, give me a little slack here. But one of the things about our roommates is that 
we wanted to see how long we could go without doing laundry. We went an entire semester, just like four months. <laughs> Don't judge. <laughs> so at the end of the semester, I mean, people could smell our room from like across campus. And it was, it was terrible. We had these piles of clothes just all over. And you're like guys, like they wear their clothes like four days straight before rotating them anyways. And so they're just piles in like these corners and things. And so at the end of the semester, we're like pulling these things out. We're like garbage baggers, like getting rid of it. And beneath the pile, by the heater, was a cup of noodle. A cup of noodle had been camping out for about six months next to a heater there. Now, how outrageous would be like, don't throw that away. Maybe it's still good. I mean, it had like teeth in it, I'm pretty sure. It was so gross. It had taken on evolution. But the same thing is, is that it's exactly the same. If I were to say, oh, no, I'm sure it's still redeemable. There's nothing redeemable in that cup. And the same thing is with our old nature. So many people want to redeem the old nature and protect the old nature, and it's, there's nothing that was worth saving. It was just as bad. And so we need to understand that in our new nature, what is possible in our new nature now with Jesus was impossible in our old nature. And there's a complete change. There's a complete, complete uh, brand new identity. The old is completely gone. And when we understand that we have the new righteousness, the new royal identity, the new holy priesthood mark that we take on, that becomes our identity. That be- makes it possible for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. How many know that Jesus doesn't roam the earth today in physical flesh, but he's alive in us? And so if we are literally the hands and feet, we're the living breath and life of Jesus on earth, because it says in Galatians 2.20, I no longer live, but Christ lives through me, that whatever you brought to the table before Jesus was totally useless now. Number two is that our old nature was inseparable from sin, but our new nature is inseparable from Jesus. Our old nature was inseparable from sin, but our new nature is inseparable from Jesus. Check out this wild verse, 1 Corinthians six seventeen. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one. Everyone say one. Is one in spirit with him. That's pretty outrageous. If you think you have a proximity issue to God, you need to read this verse. It's not like I'm kind of with God. No, it says that you are unified as one with God. You are joined with him. And so we know that sin has no claim on Jesus, right? And if we've been united and joined with Jesus, then sin has no claim on you. That's the power of having the bondage broken, that if sin has no claim on Jesus, sin has no claim on you. But chances are that you have an old flesh that likely transformed its way into this new life, but a lot of the lingering effects from our old life are still with us. You have a new spirit, but you probably have the same body, unless something totally crazy happened to you, which I'd love to hear about. But what that means is that while you're joined in spirit, you are still at war in flesh. There wasn't a war in flesh going on before Jesus. But now that your spirit has been joined with him, you now have a spirit that's in agreement all the time with Jesus because you are joined, but you have a flesh that says, I don't think so, I want to go back. And so we have to look 
our flesh and our bodies as something that needs to be taken very seriously and we have to have an eye on it. First Peter 11, I'm sorry, 11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. You need to know that your flesh is at war with your soul. And we also need to know that your body is not who you are. You don't have a spirit. You are spirit. You have a body. There's a big difference there. You don't have a body. You are spirit. You have a body. I said that wrong the first time. You are not a body. You are a spirit, but your spirit has a body. And salvation joins our spirit with the spirit of God. But you likely again have that same flesh that's still pushing you around. But it makes it possible to be a completely new creation because we are identified in the spirit realm with Jesus. That is our identity. And we are joined to him yet have consequences of the flesh from the past. That's how it's possible for us to be saved but still struggle with maybe past challenges, issues, mess-ups, and before. So number three is being joined in the spirit gives you authority over the flesh. Let me say that again. Being joined in spirit with Jesus now gives you authority over the flesh. The number one reason that we have victory over sin is because we now have authority over the flesh. 1 Peter 4.1 says that those who have the mind of Christ are done with sin. When Jesus encountered the woman who was caught in adultery, he said, go and what no more? Sin no more. He didn't say, try really hard. He says, sin no more, that we have been freed. The old nature... The flesh was authority over our spirit, little s. But in our new nature, our spirit becomes big S and now has authority over our flesh. That's why one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. You ever notice that? You're like, self-control, that's kind of an interesting fruit. I mean, what if you had a car and you go to a new car dealership and the guy's like showing you like the new specs of like the brand new Audi. And he's like, and it's got doors and wheels You'd be like, yeah, so what else? I mean, it has to be one of the things that has to be unique, and we kind of pass over that self-control as one of the supernatural empowerings of the presence of the Holy Spirit. That no longer are we subject to what the flesh wants in our old nature, but now we have divine authority to say, I don't think so. We have the ability for our minds and our will and our emotions to say, flesh, I'm over you. And that's why the scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 6.12 that we will not be mastered by anything. The scripture is totally clear that you are liberated, you are free. And from out the flows of having that nature, it gives us the victory because we are self-joined with Jesus and he is in control. But we get to choose what our mind identifies itself with. Just because that is so doesn't mean that dictates how we're going to live. We actually have a choice in how we're going to live. Does your spirit have authority of your flesh, or does your flesh have authority over you? You get to decide. Jesus tells us that the reality is, is that we have authority over our flesh, but our minds get to choose what reality we live in. So I ask you tonight, in your problem, your challenge, your issue, which one is master? Is your mind over your flesh, or is your flesh dominating your life? I even love that, that verse, the first Corinthians 6, 12, so much that I had a buddy who got like tattooed on his arm. was like, good enthusiasm, but maybe the wrong outlet. <laughs> I mean, I love it, but it's an it's amazing victory that we have. And so we are freed from the bondage of sin, and we are no longer slaves to it, 
But now what does that mean for us now with, with our challenges? What if we mess up? What if we, is it still possible? Is a holy saint and is a royal priesthood still struggle with sin? Yes. Some people say, oh, you know, they don't. Well, that, have you lived five seconds in this world? You know, it's like anybody who tells you that there'll never be more sin in your life is, is absolutely inaccurate. But what I do understand is that those who are threatened the kingdom will have a greater challenge to their purity. Those who have a greater potential in their life to do something dangerous for God are going to have a greater opposition. Now, some people, if you're not being in a world where it's like challenging and hard, then maybe you're not that big of a threat. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of challenges to my life. And like, I I don't want to mess this up. I want to be honoring to God. And so therefore there's opposition in almost every corner. But I take it as a badge. It's like, yes, I find that, you know, I might be dangerous enough to, (laughs) you know, be targeted. So, but here's the point. That doesn't mean that I cannot sin if I'm a Christian. Of course we can. And that's number four is that your holy and righteous identity will not overrule your free choice. Your holy and righteous identity will not overrule your free choice. Just because you are holy and righteous doesn't mean you're not capable of making poor choices. How many know as a new creation that you can have very dumb moments? I have them weekly. Being a holy, righteous priesthood does not prohibit you from being an idiot. It happens all the time. But when you have power and authority and prestige, as we are in the kingdom, it just makes us more embarrassed when we mess up. Does it not? That's why it feels a little bit more painful. But what I've learned is that sin is always a result of my choices. There's not a single sin that I've ever had that wasn't my idea or my choice. I was in agreement with all of them. I regretted them totally. But it was always my choice. And it makes the verse, 1 Peter 1, 5, be holy in all you do. It would be impossible if we didn't actually have a choice and decision over the sins that come upon us and our victory in them. Romans 6, 12, 13 says, Therefore... Just to illustrate this point, do not let, everyone say let. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you will obey its evil desires. And do not offer, everyone say offer. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from life, from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. If you read that correctly, if you read that backwards, you can first deduce that you are an instrument of righteousness. That's where your starting point is. But you know what the key operative words there were? Is do not let sin reign. When we hear the words, do not let sin reign, that doesn't sound like we don't have any choice. It actually kind of sounds like it needs our permission. Amen? And do not offer. It means that we're voluntarily rolling over. You cannot have anything taken from you which you do not surrender to the enemy. Everything I've lost, I've always surrendered. I haven't had it stolen from me. It's that I've, I've refused to defend it, really. And Paul references, this is fascinating, Paul references 50 times in the New Testament sin, not as a, a verb, something you do, but as a noun, meaning a thing, a third person, an operative force. He doesn't give it this behavior like, oh, you did this. He references in the third person. It's powerful. Sin is working against you. So don't let yourself participate or give yourself voluntarily to it. 
And the verses that like rack my mind is like, how is it possible that we are righteous, holy, perfected for all time? You know, these verses in Hebrews, but still capable of sin. And then yet this like pesky little truth that God remembers my sin no more. That's the other one that like constantly gets me. Anybody, you? I mean, are you like thinking like God forgets my sin? Well, not really. I mean, it's kind of like says it to make me feel better, but not really. I mean, if we're going to be honest, does anybody here truly believe that God does not remember sins? Like, well, he's God. He doesn't have amnesia because it makes you feel like I'm smarter than God. So surely that can't be true. And we, we hear that verse and we wonder like, well, does, you know, does God have a few chromosomes missing? Like, I don't even get that. I don't believe it. But we need to believe it. And here's how we can believe it. Is number five is that you are not the originator, owner, and author of sin. So stop taking ownership of it. You are not the originator, owner, author of sin. So stop taking ownership of it. You guys like the uh, you might be redneck jokes? I love it. If, if your dog passes gas and you claim it, you might be a redneck. Terrible. Can we edit that out? I'm sorry. If the devil causes you to sin and you take ownership of it, you are a Christian in bondage. If the devil provokes you to sin and you take ownership of it, you are a Christian in bondage. You are riddled with guilt. You are riddled with, how do I do this? How did I do that? I'm so terrible. I need to go and repent and do all these terrible things. I need to be either removed from anybody who loves me for several weeks and then grovel my way back and that nobody realizes I did anything and I can immerse myself back in and I'll feel better. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, get back up. A righteous man falls seven times but gets back up. He doesn't say, well, it's a really long process. We'll have to see if we can fit you in. First you need to meet with somebody. They need to tell you about how disappointed they are. You probably need to volunteer somewhere. Make sure you attend church all the time for the next six weeks, and then you'll be back and restored. No. The only way that I can think of that God can honestly forget your sin is that he never attributed to you in the first place. The only way for us to actually come to grips and say, God remembers my sin no more, is that God never attributed it to you in the first place. I'm not talking about pre-salvation. I'm talking about post-salvation. Because we know that we are incorrupt. I mean, we are corruptible. We were incapable of doing it on our own, but we have this new identity. How do we reconcile that with all these other things? And it's that God does not attribute what happens in the post-Christian life, the sin, the message. He doesn't actually attribute it to you. He attributes it to the tyrant sin who's working against you. Because God is not blind. We know that he certainly knows all things. He just knows that you're not the one to blame because you have been redeemed. Anybody who has a toddler who gets sick knows how angry life can, like, become. <laughs> you're just like, I can't talk to you. You don't understand, and you're miserable, and this sucks. Like, you know, it's just it's this terrible thing. And I'm angry at the sickness that is in my daughter. I'm not angry at her. I'm just like, I want to punch something because my daughter is sick. And I don't think about, well, she shouldn't have shared that sippy cup with that little... You know, I don't think that way. God does not remember your sin anymore because it's not part of your identity. He declares you righteous, holy, and blameless before him. He says that you have the righteousness of Christ. I don't think it gets any higher than that. It's not like you have the righteousness of Moses or, you know, Peter. He's like, you have the righteousness of Christ. 
And so that made it possible that the ownership and author of sin in your life is no longer you. It is sin working against you. Paul talks about this very thing in Romans 7. He says, so I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. He's saying this as a Christian. Paul's not saying that Christians will no longer stumble. He just says that he as a Christian, his identity is not to blame. It's kind of like if someone breaks into your house and ransacks the place and steals everything and pulls things off the walls, and then you come home and you're like, man, I'm such a slob, you know? I really need to get my act together. It's messy. It's the same thing. Or put it another way, remember the do not let sin reign and do not offer your body as an instrument of, of unrighteousness. It's like letting somebody borrow your car. I'm a nice guy. I'll let someone borrow my car. And seven days later, you get a little pesky envelope in the mail. You open it up. And two things are in there. It's a $900 fine and a picture of your car going through an intersection with a red light. Now, when that happens, you realize, well, that wasn't me. That's my car. But that's not me. And we stand before the judge, and it's like, judge... Man, I, I got a funny story for you. So I got, I let this person borrow my car and he like blew through that intersection. Like I really didn't want him to. It happened. Yes, I let him borrow it. I, I shouldn't have let him do it. I knew he already had 12 unpaid traffic tickets before, but I still let him use my car. It's the same principle here that when we let sin reign our body and we offer ourselves as instruments of unrighteousness that we are again letting the same irresponsible friend go and blaze up all of the traffic lights and rack up fines for us. And God does not attribute it to you. And it's the only way that we can explain being freed from the bondage of sin, yet encountering sin ourselves, but retaining righteous identity before the Father. But sin's greatest trick is to lure you back into captivity of the old self-mentality. One of sin's strategies is is to sow sinful desires into your mind and make you believe that you were the author and the originator of them. But don't be fooled because you, 1 Corinthians 2.16, you have the mind of Christ. Again, I don't think it gets any better than that. So if Christ never had a sinful thought, the mind of Christ, which you have, certainly does not have a sinful thought either. But if in an instance that you do have a sinful thought come in through the right ear, let it go out the left ear. When it comes in, don't pay attention to it because what Satan wants you to do, he doesn't care what you do as long as you react. He wants you to react. He wants you to react out of flesh. He wants you to react out of, out of instigation and fear and responding to, oh my gosh, what did I do? But the key is to not engage with it. The key is to not wrestle, not reason, not strive and willpower. It's actually to play dead. Because remember, you are dead to sin. And if it's sin that's working against you, you're just, you know, one of these guys. You're not even there. But playing dead is your best response to the devil. He's trying to provoke you to respond. So the goal of sin is to go after your mind and your actions. Satan knows that he can't steal your holiness. He can't steal your righteousness because those are irrevocable with Jesus. You've been joined to him. So you, to Jesus, so he can't separate you from the Father and from Jesus. But Satan wants to confuse you by making you believe that you own the sinful thoughts and actions. And since you have the mind of Christ, Satan wants to confuse your mind. 
Since Christ lives through you, he wants to allow you to mess up with your actions and say, well, Christ isn't living through you. That's his trick. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who's accusing you. And how many know that accusations don't have to be true in order to be made? Just because the devil accuses you doesn't make it true. Amen by myself. So what are the impacts and effects of sin on us? Surely it impacts us, right? Of course. Anybody who says that sin is not impacting them is lying. I don't have a better response there, but I'm just going to go with that. Which is number six. Is that sin does not make you unrighteous, it makes you unclean. Sin does not make you unrighteous, it makes you unclean. It's probable that redeemed, righteous, holy priesthood followers of Christ are going to find themselves messed up and dirty. It's likely. It happens all the time. And just because you get dirty doesn't mean that you're not valuable. It just means that you need to be cleansed. What if you had spent your entire life savings on a ring? Or in my case, life savings, dirt bike, and a few other things. And I left it out, and a dog ate it. And then I got to, like, follow this dog around and wait for something to happen. (laughs) Right? Now, when that righteous turd hits the ground, do you think I'm not going to, like, jump on that and, like, you know, find it? That is the most expensive turd on the face of the earth. I'm going to go after it. And it's still valuable, is it not? It's just dirty. Really disgusting analogies. I'm really sorry. (laughs) Dogs, of all things, this week. I'm sorry. It's still valuable. It just needs a thorough cleaning. Badly. And maybe to never be talked about ever again. You wouldn't be like, I got a story for you with this ring. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't lead with that. <laughs> Ephesians five twenty five. We read this at our our um, wedding nine years ago this week. Crazy. Thank you. It says, "Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word." Now, Paul draws some parallels of Christ as the husband and the church as the bride. We all kind of know that. But if you take out the middle, because the middle part is what he's kind of like telling us what each each one means, you can kind of condense and say, Husbands, love your wives, cleaning her by the washing with water through the word. That, That tied in there, how we demonstrate love, there's an act of cleansing and cleaning. Jesus is the husband, we are the bride. If the bride needs to be cleansed, the husband out of love cleanses her. Pretty straightforward. One of the ways that we demonstrate love and we can know that we love something is by how we care for something. One of the ways that we can prove and like be that it's evident that we love something is how we care for it. Um, I, I love dirt bikes. You guys kind of know that. Um, I, I don't like it getting dirty, but it's kind of like part, it's like in the name, you know, dirt bikes. So, in, in um, every case, the dirt bike gets dirty when I ride it. But you know what? My wife, like, calls it tinkering time because I'll go out there and I'll go with, like, Q-tips. I got, like, nine chemicals. I got rags. I got rags without lint. I got rags that won't tear. I have 
towel. I mean, I have like our dish towels out there. Like I, I take joy in like just getting like little crevices and details out. I love cleaning that thing. It's just a part of it. I don't know. Any guys like relate to that? You get like new wheels and you're like, you know, doing this guy. But sometimes that's what happens when we, we see that we love something. We take extra care. I'm going to call out Sean. Sean does this like the exhaust manifold. And he's like buffing it with like one knee up, you know. You guys look at me like I'm crazy. Or let me jump over to Scarlett because maybe that translates a little better. So Scarlett, she loves peanut butter and jelly. So we'll give her like a little sandwich, peanut butter and jelly. And she's like, ah, you know. (laughs) It's, and peanut butter in hair, that is like no simple task. If it takes like 30 minutes for a dog to get it out of its mouth, it takes like so long to get out of a little girl's hair. But you know what? Washing my little girl is one of my delights in life. I actually just, I love it. I take great care for it. And we need to know that the Father, and, and maybe Jesus particularly, it doesn't matter who, but we need to know that, that God does not begrudge cleaning you. He's not like, oh, not again. I mean, when it happens, it happens. I mean, I, I think he takes great delights. Like, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to polish it. It's going to be better than before. He's the only one that can clean us and have us be better than before. And he takes great delight in it. But what's interesting in this passage here that Paul gives us is that, he's, that Jesus is not cleaning with soap and water, but with water and word. Water and word are the two cleansing elements for Christians. And what does that mean? Water is one of the symbols that Jesus describes in the Holy Spirit. He says this, he says, He who believes in me, this is John seven thirty seven. As the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He said this, uh, speaking concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. So water is the Holy Spirit, and the word is, you ready for this? The word of God. Sorry, not, not that deep. So we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the word of God. Or you can just say truth. So you reread it, and we can read that we have been cleansed The church has been cleansed by the washing with the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Pretty specific, meaning that the Word through the Holy Spirit is what makes you clean again. But sometimes when we look at the Word, we feel condemnation, shame, we feel accusation in the Word. That's why it's important that we redeem what the Word says about us, because the Word is not going to condemn us. The Word is going to liberate it. It's using to clean us. Another way of putting it is that the Holy Spirit plus truth makes you clean. No matter what you do, no matter how dirty you get, you are still God's chosen people. You're still his son and daughter. You are still holy. You're still righteous. You are still beloved. You just get a little stinky sometimes. And Jesus has the perfect cleaning solution to get out that mess. How would you like to see that infomercial? That would be pretty intense. You got alcoholism? Drug abuse. You know, you like, and here of only nine. It's amazing. Sorry. I'm going to remove myself here and ask the band to come up. (laughs) Let me just kind of end with a couple thoughts. If you are saved and still feeling dirty, it might be because you are. If you are saved and still feeling dirty, it might be because you are. Just because God redeems, because God forgives, is all those different things. Sometimes we can still feel certain ways. Now, there's a difference between Not being a believer, but being a feeler. We're called to be believers, not feelers. Got that? 
But sometimes we haven't actually gone through the process and we actually haven't looked at what the Word says for how we get clean again through the Holy Spirit and the Word. Usually those two things come together. And when we dust ourselves and get back up, we clean ourselves and we get back in the running. Some of us have been going around getting messy and are hearing that we are righteous and holy and all that other junk, but I still don't feel righteous. I don't feel good. It's important that we're not afraid of the Word and the Holy Spirit in this, in this way. The Holy Spirit, what's one of the words? That I will send the Comforter. How bad of a Comforter is it if someone is called the Comforter and makes you feel terrible? That's a pretty bad <laughs> link there. If he's called the Comforter, surely your encounter with him is always to be uplifting. But it's so hard to believe. Like I hear people like want to defend about how the Holy Spirit wants to make us feel guilty, make us repent, and all those things. And that's that doesn't sound like a comforter to me. He's like, you're doing a bad job of your job if you're the comforter and this is what you're doing. But that's because a lie, by definition, is believable. It wouldn't be a lie if it wasn't believable. And so we need to believe that it's not the Holy Spirit that's condemning us, making us feel bad. That is actually the accuser. There's an accuser and a comforter. Which one are you in? So why do Christians still struggle with sin? I think it's because nobody has ever told them that they are free. I think it's because nobody has ever told them you're free. You don't need to do that. This old self, new self. If you keep making decisions according to your old self, wild new self, you'll probably have the same results as your old self. It's pretty deep. I'm going to say it again. Old self, new self. If in your new self, you keep behaving and making choices like your old self, the chances that you're going to have the same results and outcome of your old self are really high. One thing is that Jesus is not going to come down and like live your life for you and like jerk the wheel out of your hands and, you know, make everything. He, he's he's going to allow you to have the victory. If It's not your decision. It's not your victory. He calls us to be victorious, not to be robots. Amen? So he's given us the choice to respond and to make a, do, a new decision. That's all I got for you. Love you guys. Wow, that's all he's got for you. I love God's word. I love God so much. And what we're learning, it doesn't matter what your past is. It really doesn't matter what your present is. If you'll just believe, believe in your identity. God will give you everything you need for your behavior to match your identity. So tonight, if there's anything, if 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 you want to stand with me, if there's anything in your life that you're struggling with because your behavior doesn't match your identity, we would love to pray for you if our prayer team can come forward to the front. We would love to serve you. Kyle's going to lead us in some more worship. We're going to pray for the people who need prayer. If you need to go, we certainly understand that. Bless you. We're so glad you were with us. So join us tonight as we come.
worship and pray.